Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and uh, plenty of action already to get to uh, in terms of tennis. We have a couple tournaments to, t- uh, to talk about. We have the Australian Open coming up, and uh, we were up bright and early uh, covering the qualifying as well, which uh, we're in different places, not in Australia. We already have a crisis to speak of. Uh, so to speak, with players trying to get to the Australian Open and train. We will get to that later. But uh, first things first, Mike, you had a great opportunity uh, to speak with the founder and and publisher of Racket Magazine, Caitlin Thompson, for uh, what was actually a great in-depth interview. Yeah, I was really thrilled to speak with Caitlin. And uh, what what a wonderful person to sit down and have a chat with. It it felt both kind of like nice and casual and comfortable on the one hand, while simultaneously I felt like my mind was racing just to keep up with her because she's just such a, a bright individual and, uh, and, and sees beyond just the game of tennis in terms of all the different connections that she's trying to make with the magazine and, and draw people into the sport who otherwise might not uh, call themselves tennis fans. And uh, I mean, it's funny, some people are, are very intelligent, but, but, but speak sort of softly and others have a lot to say, but there might not be a whole lot of depth behind it. And Caitlin kind of combines it all. She's got a lot to say. And all of it is really uh, intelligent and on point. And uh, I, I felt exhausted after that interview and, uh, <laughs> and in a good way. But, uh, but it was definitely one where I had to uh, be on my toes. And so I, I thank Caitlin for, for taking the time. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, tennis magazines a little later on and, and growing up, how that helped to maybe hook us on the sport in some, some way, shape or form. And uh, this one to me, and, and I'm not just saying it because we spoke to her on the podcast this week, but. Racket Magazine to me is, is the foremost tennis magazine that, that I've ever come across. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly terrific and, and still has a presence uh, today. And um, I think uh, this interview can speak for itself and we'll, we'll debrief it right after. But uh, without further ado, uh, here's Mike's conversation with founder and publisher of Racket Magazine, Caitlin Thompson. I'm happy to welcome someone to the podcast who over the past few years has put together, without a doubt, one of the best tennis publications ever assembled. It's certainly my favorite one, if that counts for anything. And today I'll be talking with journalist Caitlin Thompson, the publisher and founder of Racket Magazine. Caitlin, welcome to Matchpoint Canada. Thank you, Mike. Pleased to be here. Really nice to have a chance to finally chat in person. Uh, after such after as all this is. time communicating on, on Twitter over these exactly. years. First of all, I want to say how, first of all, it's always nice to have a fellow Montrealer on as a guest. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Caitlin uh, was born in Montreal. Um, and it goes without saying how big a fan I am of your magazine. Um, I had a lot of fun today going through some of the older issues just to get ready with you to, uh, to talk about it on the podcast. Um, I've seen so many tennis magazines over the years. Growing up, my dad was a, at a commercial airline pilot. And so I'd go with them on flights whenever I could sort of sneak away from school for a few days. And one of the most exciting things for me, and it sounds kind of funny, is the airport gift shops because back in the day, they used to have such a great selection of tennis magazines. And I don't know if it's still like that today. I feel like it probably isn't because there were more that existed back then, but loved looking at them, loved the pictures, the articles. I mean, back in the day, that's the only place you could get your up-to-date ranking information to, um, to kind of show how things have evolved since we were younger. But, uh, never saw a magazine that ever came close to what racket magazine looks like. And I'm just wondering for you growing up as a tennis fan and a tennis player, how much did the magazines that you would come across in the tennis world influence how you wanted to make your magazine when you got it up and off the ground? That's a really good question. And, uh, 
I am thrilled to be talking to a fellow Montrealer, which is something I don't get to talk about very much because I've not lived in Canada for many years, but I was born and raised at least the first little bit um, in Montreal, uh, in DG specifically. Um, and I love going back. I have a Canadian passport and I try to get up uh, whenever possible back, uh, back home to see old friends and maybe do a little skiing. Um, but yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, for me, the tennis magazine landscape has always been very sort of service oriented, meaning a place to get rankings, as you noted, a place to find out about gear, maybe some player interviews. And, you know, really most of my um, experience with magazines generally uh, was very much the pre-internet era. I grew up very much trying to get my hands on any kind of magazine, culture magazines, art magazines, literary magazines. Um, And they just really, really spoke to me in a way that, um, you know, I think having something tangible in your hand, having something that's immersive, you know, you can't really be looking at a magazine and, and doing anything else. It's, it's sort of an all-encompassing activity. Um, was really, really formative. And I think in terms of seeing tennis publications, I think they still have, at least in the UK, a good amount of sort of sports magazines in those airport gift shops, as you note, but not so much tennis. And generally here in the States anyway, and I would guess North America generally, not too many tennis publications, which I think sort of speaks to the fact that a lot of that service journalism you can get a lot of different places most people would rather go to the internet to find a review of a racket or shoes or certainly rankings are you know available to us with the click of a button on the internet or an app and so you know I think I remember very vividly being a member when I moved to the states of the USTA here which is our you know governing body to play tennis tournaments as a junior and as part of your membership you would get tennis magazine which still exists um, and you still get it as part of, your, part of your membership, which I still have a membership to the USDA. But it was much more of a sort of journalistic endeavor. It was not quite literary and not quite as sort of art focused as what we are doing with Racket, but it was very much journalism, I guess is a good, easy way to say it. They had ownership that was um, the same company that owned the New York Times. It was um, really filled with, you know, page to page of with design and with long form writing. And, you know, I, I very fondly remember that book binding, as we call it, that very, you know, thick bound paper that sort of has a little bit more staying power than something that's stapled together and sort of more transient. And so part of that definitely influenced how we thought about creating Racket. But really, we didn't see anything like what we wanted to make, and we never did. And I think what really inspired us was kind of less what was in the tennis landscape and more that what wasn't. We saw many, many, many magazines, many beautiful um, sort of packages of writing and photography and illustration and design that would sort of crop up in many other places, but never really about tennis and certainly not in one place. And so that actually had way more, I think, of an influence on what we set out to create when we started it, which was just, how does this not exist already? And what can we do to fill in the gaps, uh, which made for a very sort of open and I think kind of evolving approach to what kind of stories we're trying to tell and how we're trying to tell them. Funny with other tennis magazines, it's uh, almost easier for me to read them in a sense. And what I mean by that is because I can put them down easily if I need to. And when I got three kids running around the house, you know, it's very difficult to find time to focus on one thing. And Racket Magazine is such an experience. Like I can remember when my first one showed up, with that really cool cover of, of Yannick Noah. And right away when I felt it in my hands, I was like, hey, this is something that, without even opening it, without even yet reading an article, you could tell it was quality. But it's also something that's, for me, I need to make sure I have that 
time to devote to it properly because once I dive in, it's hard to divert my attention to anything else. So that's a, a compliment for sure for you guys and, and what you've been doing. Um, I, I've loved it since it's arrived here at my house. Thank you. Has it been received in the way that you had hoped years ago when, when you first conceived the idea? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think what you were just talking about kind of ties into my answer to that question, which was not, not entirely, but not in a bad way. I think what Dave, my co-founder, who's our editor, and I were sort of thinking about when we created the first issue now almost five years ago was that we wanted to do something that really made people feel passionate, either because this is a sport that they knew and we were doing justice to it and putting the best paper, and I do mean paper, you know, putting something on paper with, you know, lead certified Vancouver-based printer that is all carbon neutral and expensive, as well as spending a lot of money and time on the stories and the design and illustration, um, felt like it was a love letter to the sport that we both love very much. It also, I think, was sort of, uh, not in a bad way, but a surprise when we found ourselves much more, I, w I would say maybe discovered among a literary class, sort of traveler class. I don't want to call them influencers because I don't know that that word carries a lot of weight anymore, but sort of a, a tastemaker tribe of culture people who happened to like tennis, but more than anything else liked um, you know, cohesive design and, and, and things that sort of felt very of a universe. And so it, it was interesting because when you make a magazine, when you make a physical product, and this is the reason we don't put very much on the internet, um, it's not because we hate the internet or, you know, and, and I can go down a rabbit hole of media and the way the business models work. Um, and I won't bore you with that, but <laughs> essentially when you make a physical product, you don't know exactly who's buying it. You, you know where they're, you know, what, what their address is and, and you can make some guesses as to their names if they're, you know, male or female or, you know, maybe what part of the world they live in. But beyond that, you don't know. And so Dave and I thought it was very important and also fun to start convening live events kind of shortly after our launch. So we did this sort of as a way, not only for us to kind of have fun and, and engage with our community, but kind of meet our community and figure out who they were. And we were shocked that very few of them were tennis heads, like very few of them were people who maybe traveled to all the tournaments and grand slams and were coaches and players. A lot of them had been maybe recreational players, maybe played a little bit with one of their parents growing up. Maybe they'd, you know, been on their high school tennis team, but they weren't, they weren't me who was a competitive, you know, D1 college athlete. And they weren't Dave who had played and loves gear and buys a new racket every time one comes out because he's a gearhead. It, it was just like, oh God, I loved the style of Yannick Noah. I loved the energy of watching those Boris Becker matches. I can't get over that, you know, amazing Arantxa Sanchez, Vicario, Graf, Wimbledon final. And I was like, wow, this is so different than what I thought it would be. Um, and I think it actually, at the time, it was sort of shocking to us because I was like, huh, the tennis people don't seem that interested in this. but the outsiders, the people who maybe haven't always felt invited into it, are really gravitating towards it. And it, from both a business perspective, because that group is larger, but also um, a mission perspective, which is very, very top of mind for us, being, being that we want to make tennis bigger, better, but more importantly, more diverse, more inviting, and really celebrated. Um, that, that sort of culture aspect allowed us to really reinforce, I think, a lot of the things we wanted to do, which is to say, we want to make tennis cooler. 
tennis as a sport, as a spectator sport, as a, as a recreational sport is fabulous, but it's not something that I think the sport itself and maybe even some of the tournaments have always done a good job about making people feel invited to. And so it kind of allowed us to double down a little bit on this mission to, to, to change that a little bit. And so we see ourselves very much as, um, you know, hopefully occasionally provocative, but hopefully very additive to the tennis universe. We want to make it bigger and we want to make it better. And sometimes that means we're kind of poking the bear, but more than anything else, it's out of, you know, love and reverence for the sport because we want it to be taken seriously and treated like all these other sports where culture is just as important as the sport itself. It's interesting, a couple of player names that you dropped there, Boris Becker, who is one of the ones that really got me excited about tennis when I was a kid growing up in the 1980s. Uh, Arantxa sanchez Vicario as well. Boy, she had so many great battles with Steffi Graf. Oh, yeah. and as you're describing those, I had like these vivid flashbacks to being a kid, and, and I can pretty much see where I was watching those matches. And um, even though I was young, I mean, in the late 80s, I was 8, 9, 10 years old, but those were those formative days that hooked me on the sport. And it was cool back then, you know, uh, the players to me, the ones who were at the end of their careers, like Martina Navratilova, um, Becker, uh, Johnny McEnroe, there was such an energy about those players that really captivated. And when I was rereading the first issue of your magazine, it said in there in the introduction that uh, you were eager to usher in a, a tennis renaissance. And I'm wondering if you can sort of, you know, expand on that a little bit further. Is that getting back to sort of the swagger that tennis seemed to have, the, the cool factor in the 70s and 80s that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just professional sports in general today because they've gone so corporate and, you know, the players are so carefully packaged and social media and, and having to deal with that as well. I mean, could you imagine John McEnroe with Twitter back in the day? <laughs> um, but, but what does that mean to you to get that, that renaissance of, of tennis going again? Yeah, I think you nailed part of it, which is to definitely make it feel cool again, because I don't think tennis ever stopped being cool for me. And it sounds like for you either. But I think for a lot of people, you know, we, we, and I think we're probably about the same age based on what you just said, you know, in the 70s and 80s, tennis was arguably the third most popular sport in the States anyway. The paychecks, the sponsorships, the stars that were being made. I mean, look, you know, you don't have to look any farther than Bjorn Borg going to Studio 54 with Grace Jones in a fur coat and, you know, living a party lifestyle to sort of remember that this was bigger than certainly it has been in the past decade. And I, and I think, you know, there's many, many, many sort of conversations and arguments you can get in about that. Like, well, Roger Federer earns more money and he's a bigger star and Serena Williams. And, you know, they're all right. On the other hand, tennis has, I think, lost a little bit of market share or certainly mind share among people because it hasn't done a good enough job conveying that it's fun. It's fun to watch, but it's also fun to play. And, you know, I think the sport itself as a, as a, between the governing bodies and I think the stars themselves and agents and apparel manufacturers have really made it about three or four people, three or four stars that has nothing to do with the recreational tennis players who were flooding the public tennis courts around, uh, you know, the neighborhoods that you and I grew up in. It has nothing to do with people feeling like they don't care necessarily about watching somebody win their 16th grand slam. It's more fun to watch the head case on court 27 who's losing their mind because it's, it's more entertaining. And I think other sports, I, I think a lot about the NBA, mainly because it, basketball is not a sport I like particularly. It's not one I really understand, but seeing how well and how fast basketball has grown and how it has embraced music, embraced culture, embraced politics, embraced social issues, embraced the personalities, 
And it's not just about, oh, I can't watch a Raptors game because my guy isn't playing or like, oh, LeBron is injured. So it's not going to be fun to watch. No, it's about the experience. I go to a Nets game here in Brooklyn and it's the music, the food, the atmosphere, the excitement, the imbuing in some cases with celebrity or, or at the very least neighborhoods. And so it feels like tennis has this huge opportunity to do that again. And I think in a weird way, despite the swagger that we were just talking about and some of the culture that I think we really pride ourselves on, on hopefully being successful at bringing to tennis, if not determination, um, I, I think a lot about the fact that tennis is having a renaissance right now. I mean, our really unique time and the fact that our sport is uniquely suited for a social distance era and the fact that recreational tennis players, the tennis rackets have been flying off the shelves. I talked to sport, you know, racket manufacturers who've said they've never sold so many beginner rackets. And that's so exciting to me. So I actually think part of it has to do with making the sport seem cool and making it seem friendly because tennis has a lot, especially in the past decade, been about who's the star, who's number one, how many more matches can they win? I don't think that's exciting for a lot of people. It's not about the personalities. It's not about the traveling circus of the professional tour, but it's really also not about the recreational player who can just get out and find some kind of love in their neighborhood public tennis court because we haven't told that story enough. And so that's one way that I think we've been successful, but also timing has helped a lot. And so I see that renaissance happening and I think we're a part of it. And I'm, I'm proud of that because that's certainly been one of our missions, but I think also it's out of our hands and it's because people are recognizing how amazing the sport is to play as well as to watch. Um, and it's had pretty much no help with TV, which has been notoriously bad about broadcasting. You know, I, I, I watched Boris Becker win Wimbledon in 1985, age 17. I'm sure you did too. And I watched it on like every channel had it on every replay, every newspaper. You know, nowadays somebody wins Wimbledon and it's on a, a, page A27 maybe, you know, the sports section. And I think we have to remember that the larger culture has moved on from tennis. And so that larger culture is actually where the stories need to be told because having blogs and having insular, you know, conversations among ourselves is great but it also needs to connect to that greater world so that we're continually inviting new people in. Gosh, I got about like half a dozen ways I want to take this conversation <laughs> now based on what you just said there, which was really great. Um, I mean, certainly one of the things you just touched on is, is during the pandemic, tennis does seem to be thriving on the public courts. And uh, I don't know what it's like typically in New York versus what you've seen over the last eight to 10 months. Um, but here in Toronto, for example, from spring through the fall, it was almost impossible to to walk onto a public court. They were all busy with lineups on top of that. And I've been living here in this city now for about 10 years and I've never seen it like that before. Uh, part of me was really happy to see that the sport was thriving. And part of me was like, damn it, I just want to get on the court yeah. <laughs> and hit a few tennis balls. Um, there's even a tennis court near my house that has three courts, three public courts. And one of them has never had a net on it for some reason. And I thought about investing in a net and just bringing it with me so I could always walk onto court three and just have that for, <laughs> for me idea. and my kids. Um, but certainly it's one of those sports that has an opportunity right now, a real window in this pandemic to, to add fans to it, which is kind of an odd concept to wrap your head around. Yeah. And another part, I think, well, here in Canada, at least, why we see the public courts are busier is because we do have some cool personalities who are coming up. You're obviously well aware of them. And, and not only are they cool personalities, but they're backing it up with, with really awesome games. In yeah. a diverse, you know, diverse types of games. If you look at 100, and actually, Milos to to Jeannie to Bianca Felix, Lula Dennis Fernandez. I mean, one of the things I was going to commend 
Tennis Canada, actually, uh, and I'm not sure how much Tennis Canada specifically, although, you know, shout out to Carl Hale if that guy's doing it all. But like so much that's exciting to me um, about Canadian tennis and the young kids coming up specifically is the diversity of that cohort, right? You've got Milos and Jeannie, who were kind of like earlier breakthroughs to be sure, but Leila Fernandez, you've got FAA, obviously, Chapal of Love. Like these kids are playing tennis so differently from one another. They're super different personalities. They have, I mean, Shapovalov is launching a rap career, which, you know, no comment about that, but like, okay, cool. Like FAA seems to be like, you know, Federer in training, smooth and suave with beautiful strokes. You've got like, you know, a meditating Romanian immigrant, you know, uh, all quarter and Bianca Andreescu. It's so cool that they're really, really succeeding in a way that's not uniform, right? And I think the USTA specifically, and why a lot of people point to tennis as sort of um, stagnation here in the States, and I actually don't think it's true. I think it has more to do with the recreational game and, the, and tennis culture not having kept up with the rest of the sports. But I think whenever people want to point to, oh, well, Americans like American stars, and we haven't had very many American stars. I mean, outside of, you know, the Williams sisters, the amount of American women about American period who've won grand slams is few and far between, right? Mm-hmm. You've had Sloan Stevens, you had Andy Roddick in the early 2000s. No male has won one since. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of slim pickings. I don't technically have an issue with that because I like cheering from player, uh, for players from all countries. But one thing I really don't like about American tennis is that it's a lot of, not to get too technical about the game, but it's a lot of first strike tennis. It's not a lot of complexity the games tend to be really one-dimensional there's no plan b you know you can tell that when you watch a player uh like Shapovalov, who's got all the tools or bianca andrescu who can play first strike tennis but also rally and take her time and and play the court these kids are coming to the game with a complexity that the arrogance of american training hasn't given the americans you know so i think that's maybe Maybe it's something you guys talk about a lot. I've heard you talk about it on your podcast, but I think it bears mentioning because it's, it's so different than the American style. If I were an American kid coming up, I would insist that my parents or my coach send me to Barcelona or Argentina or someplace where I would learn how to play dirt ball tennis because the first serve forehand inside out winner combination hasn't done much for American tennis at all, despite the fact that we have tons of money and tons of people, you know what I mean? And I think there's a lot to be said for Canada being as small as it is generating a whole bunch of really cool, interesting champions. Um, and I love, I love, love, love watching all of them. Yeah. We're certainly enjoying ourselves. feel kind of spoiled right now. And uh, I mean, I'm 40 years old now and over the last few years have seen tennis in this country, like, like never seen it before and never imagined it before yeah. either. Um, and that's not to, you know, disregard all the ones that came before. And, uh, and sure, but I remember know. growing up, you and I are the same age. I just turned 40. And like, it was kind of like Greg Ruzetsky, sort of Mary Pierce, but she. They both left France, us. <laughs> right? Like it's, you know, I mean, those are, you know, great champions. One with a major temper problem. Mary Pierce obviously does not have a major temper problem. But like, it was kind of slim pickings. Whereas now it's like a, an embarrassment of riches so i'm really impressed and i i suspect there's a pretty deep bench behind that where that that came from it, it seems like it at the moment and uh, i'm waiting now for the big feature in racket magazine on you know the rise of of canadian tennis and, you know it's uh, interesting you know who i wanted to write that story um 
was a Canadian journalist who I love uh, called Carl Wilson, who is a Toronto-based rock critic. And he insists that he doesn't know anything about tennis. And I keep insisting that that's not a problem because for <laughs> us, we like publishing writers who are not of the tennis world because it means mm -hmm. we can pull in more people from outside. And oftentimes their outsider viewpoints tend to be richer, I think, than a lot of, you know, uh, sort of beat reporters who know the story so, so well, but don't have the macro viewpoint. Um, because Carl Wilson's book about Quebec specifically, about Celine Dion specifically, really changed my life. I don't know. Hey, if you've where are you it. going with this one? I'm, have you I read have this no book idea. that he no, wrote? No. You have to read it. Promise me you'll read it. It's a very short book. It's called, um, it's, uh, it's one of the series of music journalism books uh, that this publishing house called 33 and a Third. Um, the music, the publishing house is called Continuum and they published this series called 33 and a Third. And it's like, you know, it'll be like, oh, a, a complete, uh, exhaustive investigation into the making of Tusk by Fleetwood Mac or, you know, Bad Brains, complete, you know, journey from A to Z. And Carl Wilson, and it's usually about like cool music and music that's like very sort of revered by like fanboy nerd guys. And he wrote a book about Celine Dion called Let's Talk About Love, Celine Dion and a Journey to the End of Taste. And Carl Wilson managed in this very short book, I think I mentioned it's small. I mean, it's like less than a hundred pages. Those are the kind and I can read these days. That's good. He, totally. He managed to explain Canadian or at least Quebecois culture, Celine Dion's own journey, which is fascinating also, compare it to like American rap in a way that was profound and the Canadian and sort of specifically French Canadian mentality in a way that I took to not only retroactively explain my childhood in Montreal and French Canadian culture, which I never really was part of, but I wanted very much to understand and, and was exposed to a lot. Um, and a writer like that on the subject of Canadian tennis is, is super, super interesting to me because one thing that is really underexplored in the article I think I would be interested in publishing would be an exploration of why most of the players I just listed are, are immigrants, right? Like, and that's and that's kind of the Canadian story too, right? Like, right. That's just and it's, so it's very like, much the Canadian story. Canada has been very, very welcoming, as every country should be, to people who want to better their lives. And Canada has been a great place for for a lot of people to do that, um, to their great credit. Uh, but also, not a lot of them are native Canadians, and I think that that's something very interesting. There must be something sort of similar in that British sense, where like, you know, British people don't necessarily like to be seen as strivers. And I wonder if that has some kind of mentality that has maybe held back a lot of, well, it, let me put it this way. Maybe it hasn't, that mentality hasn't held back a lot of children of immigrants who are like, fuck this, I'm going to go take mine. Like I have my one chance at a grand slam. I'm, I'm here for the first time. I'm playing Serena Williams at the US Open, an event she, you know, in her backyard. I'm not going to shy from this moment. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to be calm and poised, but I'm going to seize the day. And I think there must be something to that uh, that I would love to explore. So Yeah, I mean, I would imagine those types of experiences certainly lend to the competitive athlete, um, you know, if sure. they've having already gone through those types of uh, challenges or that their parents have. Um, I will definitely have to look up that book. And, yeah, I'll uh, send you a copy. Give me your address. And, and, uh, now, and now I got it planted in your mind that this Canadian article has to come to fruition at some it's point. A, it's one I've, I would very, very much love to publish because I have, no greater, uh, I have no greater ambition than to help 
explain or give more sort of context for things that I personally find very interesting, but also as a way in for people. I would love for people who maybe read, and it doesn't have to be Carl Wilson because he keeps turning me down, but like, you know, his, the, his people who read Carl Wilson don't read about tennis. And that to me is, is a feature, not a bug, right? Yeah. He can bring in all of the people who like reading music journalism and all of a sudden they're finding themselves reading about tennis. Actually, we have a, another good example is um, the cover story of this current issue that we just came out with a couple of weeks ago um, is by a Montreal-based writer called Durga Chubos. And Jur Durga is, among many, many things, a fantastic journalist, an essayist, a sort of art critic, uh, and she writes and edits the Essence publication that's based in Montreal. So very much fashion and culture. And she wrote about this painter who, who takes tennis as his main subject. And so Durga's writing had never before ventured into tennis. It probably won't venture often back into tennis, although I would love it if it did. Um, but it, again, it's a way for us to reach out and get somebody whose mind is sort of in another sphere and bring their following, bring their thoughts, bring their perspective, um, and you know, bring their beautiful words into our universe. And so to me, that's a great success. I love what you guys are doing and, and trying to use this cross appeal, you know, between music and fashion and art and, and all these other literary, you know, um, you know, geniuses that you guys have on who aren't necessarily, as you mentioned, tennis writers. Uh, and that's really what the sport needs to be doing, right? Like on a larger scale, that's what the sport of tennis should be doing right now um, to, to draw in more people. Um, I, I want to ask specifically about the magazine in terms of drawing in more people there. Has the pandemic made things harder for you guys in that sense? Because I can see people having more time over the pandemic to, to read publications that they maybe haven't had a chance to previously, but it's also maybe harder to get people to, to see the magazine on the newsstands and in public sure. places as we're quarantined at home. So how have you guys been uh, affected over the last Yeah, month? it's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, it's kind of been mixed bag. Like we, you know, some of the small, we work with a lot of small businesses because that is typically where we're stocked. Um, you know, we like very much being, you know, obviously people can go onto bracketmag.com and subscribe to the magazine or buy issues, which is great. Um, but, you know, we really like supporting and being in the windows of all of these cool indie stores that are sort of seen as neighborhood you know the one that we're stocked in the, uh, in Toronto that comes to mind is Queen Books and just you know anchors of their neighborhood cool places for people to browse you know there are um, you know the, those stores really can serve as like anchors I think uh, for foot traffic and and uh, browsing and, and sort of getting inspired and obviously they've all taken a very big hit um, you know which is really super sad and, and our newsstand sales have have suffered um, however, people have bought the magazine more than they ever have because I think they have more time to read. And I think I like to think, and maybe this is just me sort of pumping my own tires, but I like to think that, um, you know, in times and not just pandemic times, but I think things on the internet and things on TV can feel very ephemeral. They can feel very transient and maybe even meaningless. Sometimes that's certainly how I feel about them. And I think when you are looking for meaning and when you want to feel connected to something, whether it's a hobby or a community or both, um, I think reading a print publication can feel different. It can feel more meaningful. And I think um, my hope is that that's, you know, whether somebody reads an entire issue cover to cover or just has it on their coffee table and picks it up and, you know, browses through it. I hope that it, it I hope that there's some takeaway uh, in terms of meaning uh, from a reader 
you know, proportionate to the amount of meaning that we try to imbue in it. Um, you know, for us as a business, like one of the things that was so exciting that we just started this year was um, a concept called Racket House. We had, um, as I mentioned, when we launched the magazine, we decided to have parties and events, not because we wanted to, you know, have a bunch of, you know, stuffy gala dinners with rubber chicken or, you know. Is that what they uh, eat at gala dinners? Is uh... I, I'm my understanding, yes, rubber chicken. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, you know, huge sponsored, like South by Southwest kind of, you know, uh, circuses. But like, out of, an, out of a natural outgrowth of people in cities where we were launching magazines, where maybe there was a cool bookstore or event space, having a live podcast taping or having, uh, you know, mini tennis tournament or having something that, that kind of did speak to culture or music or whatever cocktails and, and hanging out. We, at the very beginning of the year, decided to sort of test a concept called racket house where we rented out um, the, the dinosaur estate in Palm Springs that has a tennis court. And we had a couple of days of clinics and we did some live podcasts and some photo shoots and it was open and free to people. Uh, you know, some sponsors picked up some bills, which is nice, but it was less of a like, Oh, let's make a bunch of money by getting corporate sponsors and just more like, Hey, we know we're going to go to Indian Wells. Palm Springs is such a cool place that gets all of these international people there for the tennis, but also it's adjacent to LA where a lot of creators come for the weekend. Maybe they come and rent a house or, or, you know, stay at a hotel for a weekend away. And we knew that there was a sort of endemic community um, that we could kind of make collide with tennis. And it worked and it was great. And it happened the night before the tournament was canceled. And we had plans to do, you know, three more this year. Of course. Um, you know, so, so you know, I, by no means am I saying like, oh, what was us? We didn't get to do this cool thing because, you know, many, many people are having a rough, rough time. Um, and I want to be, obviously be cognizant of that. But um, I'm looking forward to when it's safe being able to, kind of build on the community stuff because the community has been there for us and continues to expand, but it's crucial because it keeps us, I don't want to say honest, but it, it, it keeps us connected to this thing that we started it for, which is to build a community of people, um, not only for our own ends, but to kind of get tennis, get bring to tennis. And I think that is, is sort of a testament to our success of our mission more than our business. Um, you know, although the two, you know, generally correspond with each other. Well, I love the way that you guys have expanded over your four plus years now with the magazine. And, and the thing is when I look at the new editions and then I go back to that first one, like I said, when I was reading that introduction statement, it seems to me like you guys have held very true to the ideals and the vision that you. you had initially, which I don't think you can always say, you know, depending yeah. on how people and success sort of affects them and, takes them off the path, you know? So, I mean, listen, if we're having this conversation in like three years off my, you know, racket magazine yacht and I'm you know, <laughs> too busy to take your call, then you can for sure, uh, you know, call me out for being a total sellout. I'll be um, fine as long as you invite me onto the yacht. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I don't even look, I can't even swim. So that probably <laughs> won't be how I'll spend my millions. Um, and being in indie publishing is, you know, millions is never a word really that enters the conversation. However, um, it's funny because my partner, David, who, who sees, oversees the magazine in a very, very granular way. He's a very like detail oriented, you know, um, inch wide, mile deep kind of guy. He looks at those early issues and he's like, oh God, the kerning wasn't right. And the fonts, it's not quite what I wanted. And I look back at them and I think, wow, as do you like, wow, we, we set out to do this and we meant it. And because we meant it and because it's intentional, we've allowed it to be our guideposts. And I think, you know, for me, having been in media almost 20 years now, you know, you don't and you can't, and I think this is true of life 
and whatever industry you happen to be in. Like you can't necessarily, and you shouldn't try to plot every point along the course. Things will happen. Your journey will change. Opportunities might seem like great ones and disappear or, you know, it's just charting the course through that is hard enough without all the uncertainty of other people and, you know, all the, all the stuff that you can't control. However, I do think, and I feel very proud of the fact that if you set out to do something with absolutely 100% like uh, tested and fully meant intentions, then you always have the map in your back pocket and nothing that comes your way is necessarily too scary or too weird. It's very simple to be like, oh, this is fun and it's on mission. So why not? And that has been the ethos that we've we've pursued. And that's why it's really fun owning your own business because you get to say, why not? And then sometimes it's the obvious thing, like let's do a movie and get paid a lot of money. Like eh. if it's not, if it doesn't tick those boxes, if, if it's not the thing that allows us to feel like, okay, is this better for tennis? Are we diversifying the fan base? Are we making it cooler? Are we inviting people in? Are we talking about women? Are we talking about people of color? Are we talking about different abled people? Are we doing the things our way? And if the answer is no, even if it seems really great, it's, it's an easy no. And I, I don't say that to like sort of virtue signal or make it sound like we're, you know, saints, uh, but just rather we want to do it our way and this is our way. And until somebody buys us and we're not for sale um, and makes us do it another way, then this is how we plan to proceed. And having that sort of less plotted out, but more just intended to be, okay, well, is this good for the mission? Does this feel right? Is this something we would go to? Is this a person we would want to empower with a microphone? That That's a much, I think, more consistent way of of approaching making a bunch of you know, magazines and increasingly content because it allows us to kind of go back to that gut check as opposed to like, oh, this is how we get really big and get somebody to buy us for, uh, you know, a, the price of a yacht, right? <laughs> I think those are some, uh, some words of wisdom to, uh, to wrap on <laughs> yeah. and, um, and also some nice words sort of for the start of the year as well, just that can be applied to, to any setting or situation really. So, uh, Caitlin, I want to thank you for being one of our first guests on Matchpoint yeah, Canada no, of the new year and taking time out of your, your busy life to chat with us and share your perspectives. And uh, I'm looking forward to two things now. I'm looking forward to having you back on again. We're going <laughs> to definitely have to do this again uh, if you're up for it. And uh, also already looking forward to the next edition of Racket Magazine to uh, well, see what you have in be, store for us. Absolutely. And that should be three things because the third thing is going to be your copy of Carl Wilson's Celine Dion book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, for, I'll put a request in as well, you know, here from, if he's in Toronto, you know, yeah. maybe I can... Uh, pass some words along to him as well and make that uh, right. So all the best to you guys in, in the new year. And thanks again for joining us today. Thanks Mike. Talk soon. There you have it. Caitlin Thompson of racket magazine. And uh, yet you kind of covered a wide range across this interview uh, in terms of, you know, there's, there's a personal connection I think with you two in terms of growing up, you are the same age and you have that experience uh, reading and falling in love with the sport, maybe at, the, at a similar time. And I, I was really interested in you guys kind of getting into the, the Renaissance age of tennis, talking about the different personalities and how we kind of want to flush those out. Now we don't want to be too corporate. And I think that's where the benefit of uh, a tennis magazine, like, like rack magazine comes in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tennis has all these fantastic personalities, but it's just not getting shared the way that it used to uh, back in, you know, as Caitlin was talking about Borg in the seventies and, and into the eighties and uh, you know, tennis isn't as uh, uh, sexy as it used to be. 
um, in, in many ways, but, but the personalities are there and it's just a matter of, of sharing those. And, and, you know, it's the job, I think, of the ATP WTA tours to really find the right ways to promote those players uh, for the players themselves. I mean, they've got so many more avenues today with social media. You would think that in many ways we, we do know them a little bit better, but I think everyone's a little bit more guarded today than they used to be for having something taken out of context or, or turned on them in the wrong way. And I think there's far more potential for disaster with players on social media than there is for, uh, for things to be construed positively. So um, will tennis ever get back to, you know, how it was in its sort of heyday in that sense? It's tough to say. Um, certainly in Canada, I think we're going to see the, the biggest opportunity we've ever had, as I discussed with Caitlin, some of our uh, fine players that have uh, captured her attention as well. But, uh, you know, just to get back to the, the magazine for, for a moment, um, it's just neat how they started out wanting to provide people with, with something uh, so different, uh, you know, outside of just the, the rankings, the results, uh, a few player interviews, uh, as many tennis magazines seem to do. And uh, she really wanted to, you know, provide readers with something that couldn't be found on the internet. And I think they've done a great job at, uh, at achieving that with, with how they put together that, that overall package and aesthetic that's, that's like no other magazine out there. Yeah, uh, the design and illustration I find uh, when you gloss over Racket Magazine is is exceptional. Um, one column I, I just want to mention because I, I read it just the other week, actually, and this was from Racket Magazine. They had uh, Andrea Pekovic, WTA player, uh, write a piece for them called The Palms Bored Me. And uh, she really actually sheds like a deeper side of herself. You kind of get the introspective uh, detail on a tennis player and, and what it's like sometimes and, and talking about uh, escaping for this, what was supposed to be a beautiful vacation, but she's so kind of stuck inside her own head um, dealing with this brutal injury. That's such a setback for her and her career and her life and, and coping with that, um, which was a great read. And it's the kind of insight we don't really see, obviously, when we're just watching a tennis match, when we're just looking at results. Um, so, so that's just one example, I think, of uh, what Rankin Magazine is able to ca capture. And, uh, you know, you were able to more than scratch the surface uh, with, with Caitlin in, in that respect, which was great. I think having current players, you know, writing and, and sharing their insights into the sport, and not just on the court, but off the court as well, and certainly the mental side of things is something that makes them more relatable, uh, something that draws us in, you know, casual fans, tennis fans want to hear this, um, you know, for casual fans to, to learn about more of these players and for hardcore tennis fans to, to learn more insight into the mindset of these players. And, and that's something I think certainly growing up when I was reading tennis magazines, I don't recall too many current player articles out there where they were writing from their perspective, lots of interviews for sure, but it's different when you get to hear their actual voice through the whole thing. Um, it's interesting because I, I don't think I'm nearly cool enough to really be reading Racket Magazine, you know, that, you know, in, in some ways, because I'm not artistic. I have no sense of fashion as I'm, you know, wearing my University of Guelph hoodie while we do this interview, <laughs> which is my mainstay through, uh, through quarantine and, and COVID. Um, but I feel like I'm becoming cooler by, by reading it. So maybe, you know, if I just keep, keep reading the latest issues, um, you know, there's some hope for me there, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great publication. Um, I've got most of them, I gotta say not all of them, but most of them uh, here at home. And it definitely made me sort of dive back into um, my archive of tennis magazines from back in the day, because I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a pack rat. So I, I keep things, I hoard things on some level. My parents' garage must have, you know, hundreds of tennis magazines and boxes there. I've got a few of the ones that I really like here with me in Toronto. Uh, and so I kind of dived into a couple of those boxes to, to find some old uh, editions. Um, 
But for me growing up, it was, um, you know, a couple of things. One that I alluded to in the interview with Caitlin was at airports, I would buy every tennis magazine that I would see in the gift shops there. Cause wow. for sure, I wouldn't see those at like the corner stores where I was growing up in Montreal at the, at the Depaneur as they call them there. Um, so I, I buy everything I get my hands on, no matter how expensive, you know, the ones that were imported from the UK or from Europe or, or wherever really. And then the second way I got my hand on tennis rackets was my uncle was a, a tennis pro at a local club in Montreal. And so when he was done with the ones at the club, I would, you know, snatch them from, from his place and, and just go through them. And so, uh, yeah, I grew up on tennis magazine, which I think is probably similar for many people. Uh, tennis magazine, which is still out there, which is one of the few that survived over the years. Um, and I love going back and looking at those old editions. It's, uh, it's interesting to kind of time warp back and, and see what was going on in, in those, those earlier days. Yeah, um, I, my, my memories in terms of magazine reading when it came to tennis would be uh, at my Kingston Tennis Club, um, relaxing like upstairs in the clubhouse and we would always have different stacks of magazines. Obviously, the Ontario Tennis Magazine was part of the subscription. So you'd, you'd get the intel on Canadian tennis, which of course then wasn't the same as it was now or probably talking uh, mid to late 90s. But uh, in a way, I think that did shape a few of my favorite players um, reading uh, the tennis magazine, as you mentioned. I recall one called Inside Tennis and I was probably like eight, nine years old and you're kind of just picking and choosing favorite players at random. But, uh, you know, recall an article on Tomas Muster, who became my favorite guy on clay and um, uh, becoming a Gustavo Kirten fan and, uh, you know, embracing the Agassi Sampras rivalry. And I was actually always on the Agassi side simply because my older brother loved Sampras and generally him and I would rival uh, with the players we liked. But uh, yeah, some of that was certainly developed through, uh, through magazine, uh, magazine reading. And, and of course, you know, magazine reading today, I think we view, of, view it as a bit of a lost art, uh, but still Rackham Magazine is able to capture these stories, which uh, I, I still think plays a big role. And actually, I, I just want to note, Nicolas Mahou, the French player, actually had a post the other day about, I believe the, I don't know if it was a magazine or a newspaper called L'Equipe um, in France, which I believe that publication was ending. And he wrote a very detailed uh, a little piece about why I was so sad to see it go, just the memories and the connection he felt um, as a Frenchman to reading that paper, getting your morning coffee and, and opening up and reading these stories, um, how that's something that's lost uh, now, obviously, in our, in our online world, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, kids who are growing up today are not going to have the appreciation or the ability to fully understand, well, many things, let's be honest, but, but one of them <laughs> is the, the importance of, yeah, sports magazine, whether it's tennis, hockey, football, what have you. Because back then, you had nowhere else to get your information, uh, especially with tennis. If you were lucky, I mean, for me, it was growing up reading the Montreal Gazette. And, you know, they'd have a little bit of tennis coverage, uh, certainly in the summertime around, uh, you know, the Canadian Open at, um, at Jerry Park. But otherwise, very, very little. It wasn't like they were putting in the, the ATP WTA rankings on a, on a daily basis. Uh, so even just for something as simple as, I mean, now we take it for granted. We just go online and you, you see the rankings in real time. Um, you know, there's websites that will even update mid-tournament a player's ranking, of course. And back in the day, you had to wait for your tennis magazine to come out, to flip to the back. It was always like the back page of tennis magazine. And yeah. I can remember that would always be where I'd start when I'd get the magazine, whether I had a subscription or, or got it from my uncle or whatever the case would be. Flip to that back page to see how your favorite players were. It's like, oh, where's Boris Becker now? Where's, you know, I was going to say Steffi Graf. Well, she was pretty much always number one, it seemed. But you know what I mean, right? You had to go looking for, you know, did they go up? Did they go down? Yeah. And it would only show you the top 50 
I think it was just the top 50. And so if a player dropped below the top 50, you'd kind of be screwed in terms of, well, where did they end up? Who's to say? Because the internet didn't exist at that point. So uh, rankings was so important. And then the other thing was, um, you know, pictures of your favorite players, the gear that they're holding, the, uh, you know, tennis attire that they're wearing, whatever. Again, there was no internet, so you couldn't just Google and see pictures from anywhere. You might get the odd one if someone won a grand slam in the newspaper. But otherwise, again, it was tennis magazines filling that void. So, um, yeah, something that, like you said, is a lost art but one that uh, I'm thankful I got to enjoy at least uh, while I was growing up as a young tennis fan. Yeah, yeah, same here. The The magazine of choice for me was a, a subscription to Sports Illustrated. Um, so that was where I consumed most of my sports content uh, back then. Uh, before we move on, uh, Mike, I know you wanted to get maybe a potentially new se- segment at some point for listeners of, of getting trivia maybe someone involved in our podcast and it's certainly a nice thought and you said you had a challenge for me which i am very nervous for okay so here you go so we haven't discussed this previously i'm putting ben on the spot which is fun for me and maybe not so much for him but as i was going through the old tennis magazines today i did come across uh you know a fun stat and i thought okay well let me ask this one to ben and i'll pose it to you in a way that gives you at least a fighting chance here and that i'll give you four options we'll go multiple choice and uh, if you want to come up with something for me next week and challenge me i'm not saying we have to keep score yeah. I mean, I probably will because I'm so competitive and I could never beat you on a real tennis court. But, um, you know, uh, and then definitely something we could do with the listeners at some point, too. So hmm. here we go. Here's what I got for you. Who was the first player on the ATP tour to prevent Ivo Karlovic from getting an ace in a match? Wow. And what it is- took 200. This is remarkable. It took 255 matches before Dr. Ivo was denied an ace. And it was by one of the following four players. Was it A, Andre Agassi, B, Novak Djokovic, C, Gael Monfils, or D, David Ferrer? Wow. This is a quite, quite a brain buster question here. Um, I had fun just coming up with the other three options, to be honest with you. Yeah. How many, sorry, how many matches did it take? It was 255 matches into okay. his career before... Via via that, I'm going to rule out Agassi. I don't think it was Agassi. And so our other options were Mofis, Djokovic, and Ferrer. Djokovic, of course, you know, he, best returner in history is the, is the prevailing belief, but I feel like that's too obvious, so I'm going to scratch him off. And I, I sense that it's either Mofis or Ferrer, and... Just based on wingspan, Ferrer being a shorter player, surely he was aced at least once. I'm going to go with Gael Monfils. That's great, man. Good for you. You got it. Absolutely. All right. That was a lucky guess. I thought I'd try and throw you off with, you know, the two greatest returners perhaps of all time in Agassi. I'm pretty sure definitely played against Karlovic at some point before he retired. Um, And then Djokovic was, yeah, maybe too obvious, as you mentioned. And uh, I like the wingspan, and that's obviously part of what what worked for Monfils because – He's got the distinction of doing that, um, which I think it was on clay, so that makes a little bit more sense, I suppose. Yep. Um, and that I can't take credit for coming up with that question myself. It was in the uh, July 2008 uh, issue of Tennis Magazine with, uh, oddly enough, the, the, the cover is Roger Federer in his Wimbledon whites, and the, the title is Roger Federer, How Long Can His Reign Last? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a nice prelude to what happened, of course, uh, 
in that 2008 uh, year at Wimbledon. Finally, finally, the rain was stopped, at least uh, temporarily. Uh, there you so go. Speak. Okay, uh, well, job well done. You get, uh, we'll give you 10 points for that one. And we'll see <laughs> I appreciate that. Appreciate that. I'll have to come up uh, with a multiple choice question for you uh, next week. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. And uh, we'll move on to some of the action just around the tours before we talk about uh, the Australian Open and everything that's happened there. Uh, just starting on the WTA side, which I find a bit more fascinating uh, in terms of action than ATP, though we did have two tournaments. WTA, we had the Abu Dhabi Open, and we're talking about Arena Sabalenka now. She's won three consecutive tournaments going back to last year where she won Ostrava, Linz, and now opens this year, winning Abu Dhabi, 15 consecutive match winning streak. And she has an amazing nine titles, actually, which I saw is currently sixth amongst active players, which is very, very impressive given her age. And that, you know, that's, that's more titles than players like, I believe, uh, Benchich has. I believe that's more titles than Osaka even has on tour currently. So really stunning what she's doing. I was also surprised when I heard that, that she's got nine now, and, and then you make the obvious leap to, well, when's the success at a slam going to come because she hasn't made it past the fourth round of a slam, and pretty sure she's only done that once as well. So uh, you got to feel with the way that she's playing right now, and you know she's only 22 years old also, so let's keep that in perspective. But you got to think this is the year that she makes the slam quarterfinal or, or better, and she's clearly had success in doubles at the slams already. Uh, winning one and, and making the finals or semis of another one at least. Um, yeah, so I delved a little bit into her, her recent you know, winning streak, which goes back to two tournaments to close out uh, 2020, and now the first one she's played in in 2021. And she said in a recent interview that it was her match in Ostrava against Sarah Sariba Tormo that really kind of turned things for her. And I had forgotten, but she came back from uh, Love 6, Love 4, to win the final 12 games of that match and, and oh. take it and then moved on to win that tournament, of course, as well. And, and how can a moment like that not be a defining sort of moment where you realize, hey, if I can come back from the brink like that and, and not just come back and sort of battle, but she like flipped that match on its head and, and totally turned it in her favor. You know, if I can do that, why, why shouldn't I be more competitive in, in other moments? And, uh, and she got revenge on, on Ons Jabur, mm-hmm. um, who, uh, who beat her in her, her last loss, which was at Roland Garros. And then I go back to the U.S. Open, where she lost 6-1, 6-3 to a very in-form Victoria Azarenka. Um, and you can't fault her for losing to Azarenka, but I think that scoreline is something that a player of Sabalenka's uh, caliber, you should not be losing by that scoreline, uh, you know, when you've got the, the firepower and the abilities uh, at your disposal like she does. So looking forward to seeing her kind of, you know, make that more of a, uh, make more of this winning habit when it comes to the slams. And, uh, you know, like, like we talked about in recent years, someone like uh, Alina Svitolina, who had so much talent, was winning loads of tournaments, WTA tournaments, but wasn't past the quarters of a slam. Um, yeah. I think it's Sabalenka's turn to, uh, to, to sort of correct course on that one and, and make that, uh, you know, more of a, a leap in, in 2021. Yeah, and uh, I expect to see it. Obviously, this is a perfect start that you could draw up. Even that semifinal match against uh, Maria Sakari, who was playing a great tournament up until then, 6-3-6-2 is quite a scoreline. And then following it up in the final against Victoria Kudermatova, uh, great on her to make the finals. But uh, it was really one-way traffic throughout the final for for Sabalenka winning that 6-2-6-2. And uh, with this result, she actually moves up in the rankings to number seven, which does impact Bianca Andreescu. Uh, in the seeding at the Australian Open, Bianca will be seated eighth 
rather than seventh where she had been in the rankings. So Arena Sabalenka moving up. Uh, just on the ATP side, uh, Hubert Hurkacz, who was playing in the United States, took the trip to Florida to play the Delray Beach Open, captured his second career title, and he beat uh, Sebastian Corda there. Um, that was a, a pretty routine final, 6-3, 6-3, second title, as I said, for her catch, and that was the first career final for uh, Sebastian Korda, young, upcoming American impressive player. And then in Turkey, in Antalya, Alex Diemenauer picking up the title there um, with, a, with a solid tournament. So a couple of our younger players um, producing solid results early on, young 20s players. Her catch has always been kind of on the radar, who feels like, Definitely top 20 potential and better. Alex Diemenauer, we know pretty well, just the lightning speed around the court and and some good shot, shot making as well. Uh, two players I expect to probably make more strides um, this season, I would think. Yeah, Diemenauer's speed is just incredible. It you know, makes me think of you know someone like Michael Chang, who I grew up watching, who was just so incredibly quick out there. And, and Diemenauer, I mean, the athleticism of players today is so much better than the previous generation. And that's pretty much typical in any sport. Uh, fantastic to watch Diminar move around the court. Her catch, I don't know as much about him. i got to be perfectly honest. I haven't seen as many of his matches. Um, but he did have some good ones at the Rogers Cup a couple of years ago. I think it was a, a late-night thriller against Stan Vavrinka that really captivated people on an outside court. I think that was her catch. I'd have to double-check. Um, super fit. Boy, is he ever fit. I saw him on a practice court at one point. And, uh, you know, the shirt comes off and some of the ladies start to lose their minds. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so you swivel your head. What's everyone, you know, screaming about? And, uh, I mean, there's a six-pack and then there's her catch. So it's, uh, you know, obviously the fitness is, is super high for him. And one other name you mentioned there and, uh, was, was Corda. And uh, his father, of course, or, yeah, yeah Peter yeah. Corda. Uh, I wonder if he, does his son ever do the, the scissor kick? Because Peter Corda used to do this really awkward but, but totally ridiculously entertaining scissor kick when he would win a match and uh, I wonder if that if the, the son ever thinks to as a tribute or homage to his father throw in a scissor kick maybe he's got to wait for the right moment you know when he uh, when he has the, the right stage for such a display I guess right right it was very very small crowds at Delray Beach I didn't notice that uh, uh, but it is his first final and should know Peter Corda had a terrific career I believe Australian Open champion at some point 1998 was the year I want to say 98 yeah. Corda yeah, Sebastian Carter, who's already making uh, big strides, definitely a, a successful tournament uh, for him and uh, sets up a nice platform for him for his season as well. Uh, we should get to the Australian Open action, and maybe I shouldn't call it action, but more call it chaos. And what has transpired over the past few days has kind of gripped Twitter, um, and we're, we're seeing the reaction from players and fans alike. But uh, players from three separate flights, uh, 72 in total, are now – in a two-week quarantine, they were all headed to Australia from, from different places, Abu Dhabi being one of them. Um, and because of positive cases on each of those flights, this doesn't mean the players were positive, but just because of uh, a positive case on a flight, that forces you into a two-week quarantine as you arrive in Australia, completely quarantined in your hotel. So you can't get outside of the hotel room to train on court, no practicing whatsoever. So this is affecting... Um, over a third of the entrance for the Australian Open. Big impact. And uh, the big Canadian side of the story is Bianca Andreescu is one of those players impacted. And Sylvain Bruneau came forward and said, I was the one uh, on this flight who had the positive test. Yeah, I feel really bad for Sylvain Bruneau, first and foremost, just that he's got COVID-19. And hopefully it's in a, a mild form of it for him and then he gets over it 
soon. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where some people seem to shrug it off really quickly. And, and for others, even at a younger age, it can become quite problematic. So, you know, we hope for a speedy recovery for, for Sylvain, who we've had on the podcast not too long ago. And, um, you know, the second thing to that is just, um, he felt so bad about it. He felt so bad in his, you know, letter that he, uh, or short statement that he released, uh, feeling really guilty, obviously, for the effect it's caused now on the other players and their, their entourages who were on that flight. Uh, so you certainly feel for him in, in that sense. Um, but, uh, you know, players had to know that this was a very realistic possibility, especially with the way that numbers are trending these days, that something like this could happen. And, uh, I mean, it makes it tough on them for sure. And, and I'm not saying it makes it tougher on them than the average person. I mean, everybody's been going through a, a tough go. And for those of us who aren't celebrities or, or professional athletes, you know, we've still had to deal with, uh, I mean, not being quarantined in a, in a hotel room for this length of time, but we've all kind of felt like we're going stir crazy at home. And, and many people have, you know, unfortunately lost, lost big things in their lives, whether it's a loved one or, or lost their job or employment uh, because of this. So got to put it in perspective. That being said, we do have to address what the effect on a professional tennis player would be to have two weeks where they're, you know, in a small room um, and not able to be out on a tennis court practicing ahead of the start of the season where they no doubt want to be successful and have a good start and, and lead into the Australian Open with a little bit of momentum. So from that standpoint, yeah, it's definitely going to be a challenge for them um, and, uh, and not one that I would look forward to. But 14 days is, is you know, still, you know, put it in perspective, uh, you know, something that they're all going to be able to get through. Yeah, and we're we're seeing a, a creative side of tennis players come through in their hotel rooms, uh, hitting a, a ball against the wall, doing training. Uh, I saw a video of Rebecca Marino skipping, videos of Yulia Putin Seba, Pablo Cuevas looking like he was kind of taking a steam and a towel. I wasn't really sure what that was about, but that was sort of interesting. Um, and there has been a negative reaction to some of these players, accusing them of being entitled because they were very frustrated. Uh, by this process and of course being stuck in their hotel room I understand those frustrations and I think part of the issue lied with maybe some communication or lack thereof maybe maybe between Tennis Australia and players heading uh, to Australia to compete uh, that some felt they were kind of left in the dark about the situation that uh, if there were a positive case on one of these chartered flights that they would be completely quarantined, not able to leave their room. A, a few, I can't remember a specific name, suggesting they wouldn't have even gone and attended the Australian Open or, or thought otherwise had they known that was the circumstance they were entering into. Um, but this is the case. I saw Elise Cornet, uh, she had deleted a tweet, which I hadn't had the opportunity to say, but uh, she was apologizing to her Australian tennis fans um, to and, and kind of, acknowledging maybe she will uh, think twice before she tweets something, but obviously she tweeted quite negatively about the situation and, and had a backlash reaction. So I, I do feel for the players. I wouldn't want to be cooped up in a room for two straight weeks. Um, maybe it feels that way at times for us within COVID, but uh, I do have the privileges of still stepping outside, going for walks. They don't have that right now. This is their livelihood. They're not getting that opportunity to train. Um, so I, I hope, the bulk of the issue wasn't just a communication problem, but uh, now we have, you know, Novak Djokovic uh, communicating certain demands to Tennis Australia to try and set up some some recourse for players to get out and train, and, and I just don't don't see it happening. Yeah, before I get to the Djokovic letter, um, because that's its own sort of, you know, bundle of joy to unravel, um, but, but as you were mentioning, I mean, 
players being accused of being entitled, and I can see where that comes from because it seems like they've got it pretty good. I mean, you got to keep in mind that for players outside of the top 80 to 100, it's still, you know, a big financial strain to get all the way over to that side of the world. Yeah. Uh, look, it's human nature to complain about things. If, if, if people on social media heard all the things I complain about on a daily basis, you know, entitled would be one of many words that they would hurl at me, I'm sure. And so let's, let's all just keep in perspective that it's human nature to, to bitch about things, right? Yeah. Um, uh, certainly there's an element of, of lack of communication going on there. And it reminds me, as you said that, of, of Matthew Willis, who I really enjoy following on Twitter. He's at Matt Rackett, by the way. And he tweeted earlier today that tennis is the worst major sport at basic communication and it's not close. Uh, and I'd have to tend to agree with, with that mm -hmm. statement. And so I can see why there might be frustration on the part of the players, uh, maybe a little lack of foresight, uh, you know, from governing bodies and tournament organizers at, uh, you know, telling players, Hey, this could happen. Uh, you know, that being said, if you go from one country to another right now and you're just a regular Joe, don't you have to quarantine for 14 days anyways? So right. it, it kind of boggles my mind how professional athletes, and I'm not just picking on tennis athletes here, are, are allowed to, uh, you know, just show up in Australia and, and begin, you know, wandering all over the place, just like it's kind of a head scratch to me how the NHL is, is opened up now and there's no more bubble where they're in a hub city or two hub cities and they're traveling all over North America right now, well, within U the U.S. and then the Canadian division, mm -hmm. and how they're able to do that as, as COVID numbers are just so incredibly terrible at the moment. So, uh, you know, a lot of bigger questions here that, that go beyond tennis and, and just, you know, how are athletes given the permission to do these things that regular people cannot. And, and thank God that we can't because then, you know, the numbers would be even worse. But, uh, you know, I think you, you said, what, 74 players so far have been impacted by this. That number, you know, it seems to me can only go one way for right now, and that's up. Right. And, uh, you really got to think, is is there, you know, what, what percentage chance would you say that the Aussie Open maybe realistically might not even happen, depending on how things progress at this point? No, you're, you're completely right. And uh, one problem, too, I think it, we don't want to have a situation which is kind of a contentious relationship between players traveling there in Australia and Australians who don't really have an interest, say they don't have an interest in tennis in general, interest in a major tennis tournament being held in their country. And this is actually a nation that's done a terrific job in the handling of COVID-19, that their case count has uh, gone down significantly, actually, in the past few months. They've, they've gotten a hold of it. They don't want any risk. So I, I'm sure part of the issue right now it lies in that fact, uh, that Australia has COVID-19 under control, it feels like, and you certainly don't want any kind of outbreak. And how disastrous would it be if you had an outbreak tied to a tennis tournament? Was that really necessary to do? So I understand uh, from that perspective, uh, the problem. And, and this is affecting a lot of the, the major players. I want to just note, uh, if we're talking about entitlement, 16-year-old uh, Coco Goff, I just read a st statement from her. She said, I have no issues I'm comfortable in my hotel. The food is good. I'm good. So there you go. There you go. that's pretty telling that 16-year-old Coco Goff is uh, not remotely complaining in the least over this quarantine time, and we have others uh, not doing the same whatsoever. Hey, Ben, you know who else is going to be pissed about uh, what's going on right now? And I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's, uh, it's the hotels that are hosting these players because when these players are done with these rooms in 14 days or whenever they stay, in Australia is done. There's going to be some major needs for renovations. Oh yeah, Re repainting from all the tennis ball marks in the walls. The mattresses are going to need to be, you know, redone because I saw someone surfing on his mattress. I forget who that was earlier today. Yeah, uh, 
broken. I mean, TVs are going to be broken with Aaron tennis balls. Oh my God. I can just, admit. <laughs> plus the smell, just the smell of the sweat from the players working out in their rooms. Oh, I know. Uh, it's yeah, going to be I, awful. Yeah. There was a very funny kind of side by side by side shot of three different players by the window uh, in their hotel room. I think there was Mackie McDonald, the American actually lifting a few dumbbells. Looked like he was doing some curls. Bernard Tomek, who actually qualified for the Australian Open. He was just kind of chilling there with his racket. And uh, one of the players, uh, it's slipped my mind, but uh, doing doing a different thing to try and entertain themselves uh, as the time goes by. And they're only a couple days in right now. They still have a, a ways to go uh, to get out of this quarantine and hopefully play a, a safe safe event and a safe Australian Open is, is really all we can wish for at this point. Yeah, well said. And, uh, and before we move on from this topic, you did mention Novak Djokovic, who, you know, on the one hand, uh, admirable that he is sticking up for player rights, and that has been something that he has definitely made a priority. And so I, I do applaud that and the, the sentiment. But once again, you know, the, the delivery and perhaps some of the demands that players be given their own private homes with tennis courts, I mean, this is just not going to happen. Um, you know, not to mention the fact that the Adria tour that happened in the summer was such a colossal disaster in the way that they handle protocol. I really don't feel like Novak is in a position to be sort of making demands during these times. Um, but I should say that it is noble that he is sticking up for his fellow player. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's a good point. I, I feel like for the world number one, who's such a tremendous athlete, and I feel like he tries to do the right things off the court. Uh, he is charitable. Uh, just has this bad habit of kind of sticking his foot in his mouth. And that feels like one of these moment, moments right now. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to be overly critical. As you said, he is trying to stick up for the players. And I just don't believe anything is, is going to change whatsoever in terms of this quarantine. Uh, we should move on and, and wrap, actually, with Australian Open qualifying, which we had discussed and kind of glossed over in our in our previous episode, uh, we, we did have five Canadians total competing um, and four of them failing to move on and Steven Diaz, Peter Polanski, Braden Schur, Jeannie Bouchard. And I think the name obviously that's standing out to me not moving on given the great form we of course saw from her towards the tail end of 2020, making a WTA final in Istanbul, playing well in Prague as well, is uh, Jeannie Bouchard unfortunately going out in the second round of qualifying. Yeah, I would have... <laughs> I mean, I was thinking it was almost a foregone conclusion that she was going to qualify. I thought so, too. And you know what? The, the, the fact that I felt that way and the fact that many people felt that way is the positive to take out of the result, I think. That if you're a Jeannie Bouchard fan or if you're Jeannie Bouchard, the fact that people kind of thought, given the way that you've been playing as of late and finished off 2020, that you would likely qualify for the slam. That's a big step up over how we felt the past couple of years. We're certainly, I don't think at any point, we felt like it was a given that it was going to happen. So disappointing that she fell in the second round of qualies. Um, but, but that being said, I think uh, easy enough to probably shrug off, move forward, see that your ranking is back in, what, the top 150 or so, and, uh, and, and say, hey, there's a long season ahead of me and uh, no reason why I can't pick back up where I left off. Yeah, certainly. Um, as for the uh, Canadian men, all competing, Stephen Diaz, Peter Polanski, Braden Schnur, they all won one match and then lost. Uh, the name that's standing out to me, uh, who I feel like is playing, you know, some of the best tennis of his career, at least right now at the age of 29. Of course, he qualified for Roland Garros uh, last year, and we had a great conversation with him then, is, is Stephen Diaz. And I feel like, I don't want to call it a full turning point of his career, but he's just been kind of on a, a steady 
steady, but I suppose slow ascent in the rankings and, and finding his place on tour and is one, I, I feel like one of those players who is going to be competitive in qualifying and competitive at challengers and kind of on the brink of playing in these ATP events. And he lost a tough three setter to Humphrey Laxanen, who's a player who has played in Grand Slam events. He's done a great job over the past year or two of really putting himself into the conversation of like the next levels of Canadian players, you know, the ones outside the top 100, uh, you know, the ones that are playing primarily challengers, futures, that type of uh, event. And, and he'd kind of been like the forgotten Canadian for, for so long because, you know, once we got past Milos, Felix, Dennis and Vashik, we would focus on Braden Schnur. We talked a lot about Peter Polanski. Philip Pelavo was a name that came up often. We hardly ever really talked about Steven Diaz. And yet he was quietly going about his business and, and racking up wins, you know, in the minor leagues of tennis to the point where now I feel like outside of the four that, that are in the top uh, 100, I say Steven Diaz is that next guy that I would bring along in terms of like an international competition, given the way that he's played and given his strengths on both clay and, and hard courts. Um, Peter Polanski to me, and this is no disrespect to Peter, you know, he's made a good living out of uh, being that guy in the qualities at the slams for the most part. Uh, but I think at this point in his career, being in his early 30s, probably we've, we've seen his best already. Um, Braden Schnur is, is one that uh, we got our hopes up a couple of years ago when he had that great run in New York at the New York Open uh, mm -hmm. early in the year. I want to say that was, uh, what, 2019 uh, off the top of my head? That's right. Uh, seems like he slowed a little bit. But again, last year was, was not really indicative of anyone's true you know, performance and, and abilities. Um, so I think Braden still has, has time to uh, make a go of it. But Steven Diaz to me is, is really impressed. And um, disappointed for all three of those boys not to, to make it through. Um, but I, I think there's a positive to take for, uh, for Diaz. And, and I look forward to what he can do this year as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, as you said, I, I think he, he is a bit of a dual threat in terms of uh, comfort on the clay court surface and some comfort on the hard court surface. So uh, if he can make uh, further strides, I don't, I don't know if top 100 is the ceiling. It, it's kind of tough to say. And we've seen Peter Polanski, as you mentioned, get so close to that top 100 mark. I believe he reached a career high 110 and that was back in 2018. I don't want to, I don't want to say the ship has sailed or anything. I think his career will continue, but uh, he's had a tough go of it. I, I think over the past couple of years and, and Braden Schnur, uh, the New York Open being his peak, I believe he snuck inside the top 100 actually two years ago uh, by virtue of that great result. Uh, but we, we haven't seen quite that same form over the past year or two. But you know who we've seen great form from? And this was the story of Aussie Open qualifying to me, not just for Canada, but how does she do it? How does Rebecca Marino again come back from, uh, you know, not nearly a lengthy layoff as the five years she took off originally, but a year and a half is still a heck of a long time to come back and come back at Grand Slam qualifying and win all three of your matches without dropping a set. I mean, this is just phenomenal stuff and uh, couldn't be happier to see Rebecca back on track and, and the fact that she's going to be in the main draw at the Aussie Open. Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable story. Um, the, the thing that's standing out to me for Rebecca Marino in terms of her game, what she talked about with us uh, after that first match, and you can hear the interview um, uh, on Match Point Canada as well, is her serve really clicking. That final qualifying match, 
against uh, Zanevska. She had 16 aces in a two-set match. That is a lot of aces, especially in the women's game. To see 16 aces uh, come from a tennis player is a huge, huge number. So she is clearly dialed in with her serve, and I think that's just loosening up the rest of her game, knowing she's very comfortably holding serve, that she can apply all sorts of pressure in her return game. So uh, remarkable story that, uh, you know, eight years ago was the last time she qualified for the Australian Open. Uh, I, I don't think she, we could have pictured her doing so in 2021 and, and she she detailed as well so much so many struggles that she had 2020 uh just in her personal life um tragically losing her father losing a cousin going through an injury so overcoming so much we already know how resilient she is uh i think personally to see what she's doing professionally is is just as remarkable that's yeah, such a great positive story and just uh, such a source of inspiration to to many and uh, she just recently turned 30 and what a great way to start that new decade in your in your life by uh, returning to the sport you love returning to your your job your career having that immediate success um again over the last year and a half the the ups and downs i'm sure she's been through as you mentioned personally but just even coming back from that injury such a long time to be away from the craft that that you do and uh you know this is great financially for her this is great in terms of confidence and, uh, and she is a, a special player who came back the last time and had some really great results winning some ITF events. So I'm anxious to see what she can do as well here. And, and even if she goes out, you know, in the opening round of the Aussie Open, it's a success. And I think she'll see it as a success as well, uh, given yeah. what she's been through. Yeah, no question. Uh, we will be uh, watching and rooting for her, no doubt about that. Um, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We thank Caitlin Thompson, who was our guest this week, uh, founder of The Racket Magazine. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Played guitar, jamming good with weather.